as I've alluded, and as if you were here last week, you know from our reading service, we jump back into our study of Mark's gospel that we began back in February. But since we took our break from Mark's gospel uh, in May so that we could study the minor prophets throughout the summer, what I want to do is kind of do a little bit of work in getting you back up to speed on what Mark's gospel is about, what's his intention, before we jump in to the text of our passage that we're looking at this morning, which is Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, which starts the second half of this gospel, and then we'll be going up to chapter 9, verse 29. And I'll explain a little bit later why that might seem like such an unusual division. Uh, so, the first thing I want you to remember as we kind of jump back into gospel narrative uh, is that the, the gospel writers, they're not just historians, right? But the gospel writers are theologians as they write these four gospels. Now, what that means is what we're looking at, looking at in the gospels is not necessarily a straight history. And the way we moderns consider history since the kind of after the rationalism movement and post-enlightenment, history should always be very objective and untainted and a chronological series of events, and that's how we record history. But that's unusual. We didn't record, society never recorded history that way up until roughly uh, the 1800s. Most societies, especially societies of antiquity, always recorded their histories with a point. It wasn't just recording series of events, but they were trying to tell a story. They were trying to make a point and the Gospels are no different. So as they're recording the history of Jesus, they are also interpreting the history of Jesus so that we could grasp the point, so we could understand the story. And so what that means is as we read the Gospels, whether it's Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John, we shouldn't just passively read them like, okay, here's chapter one, I read chapter two, and then chapter three, and then chapter four, and that's just the way it goes. No, we actually read the Gospels and ask, why does the contents of chapter two follow chapter one? Why is chapter three situated here? And this becomes particularly important if you read the other Gospels along with Mark. What you're going to notice is that each of them were telling the same overarching story but since this story, since this history is so massive and the implications uh, ongoing, there was no one way to tell it. And so you'll notice as you read it and you start comparing it and asking this question, well, why did Luke order these events differently in his third chapter than Matthew did? And why does Mark expand almost for 10, 15 verses something that Matthew just mentions in one verse in passing? It's because they were bringing a different nuance to the story. It wasn't just one event, as if you read one gospel and you know them all. Now, in one sense, you get the meta-narrative of that, and that is true, the kind of milestone issues are the same. It talks about humanity's lostness and God's deliverance in Christ and His work on our behalf. But there are a thousand other things that are going on that each of them are bringing a different perspective to. So what we have is a very multifaceted story. So, for example, Matthew, he's writing his gospel to convince his brothers and sisters, his Jewish family, that Jesus is, in fact, the true descendant of King David. He has the right to rule Israel. And so, Matthew's emphasis is that as Jesus, as the son of David, he, in fact, is the true king that the nation of Israel has been waiting for. 
Mark, who's writing to a different audience, he's talking about the unique power and authority that Jesus welds. And if you've been part of our series, you know how often people, their minds are being blown and they keep asking, how does he do this stuff? Mark is showing that Jesus has this unique combination of authority and power, and there's this mystery to him. And he's called the Son of Man more than anything else in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark is showing that this Son of Man is the unique servant, the true servant of humanity, and particularly tapping into Isaiah's prophecy. So Matthew wants him to show us to see Jesus as the Son of David. Mark wants us to see him as the Son of Man. Matthew wants everyone to recognize that Jesus is the true King. Mark wants us to recognize Jesus is the true servant. But now Luke, as he writes his gospel, he recognizes Jesus isn't just the Messiah for the Jews. Jesus is God's salvation for all humanity. And so you see this in Luke chapter 3. Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And so Luke displays Jesus not just not as the son of David or the son of man, but the son of Adam because he is for all of us. He is the true man. He is the one that saves humanity. He becomes what every single man and woman was, should have been back in Genesis 1 and 2, but because of the fall in Genesis 3, none of us could do it. He's the true man. Now, John comes in later. He's the last gospel writer and says, okay, guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you did a good job here, but there are some gaps. There are some things that I think I need to put in there, which is why a lot of what you see in the gospel of John isn't found in the other three gospels. So for those of you who are Bible students, you like to know these kinds of things. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels from the Greek sin, an idea that means to go together like syndrome or something. Sin, optic, to see. We see things together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see a lot of the same things, but from different perspectives. John comes in later, the last gospel writer, and says, oh, we need to really make sure that we understand that he's not just the son of David, the son of man, the son of Adam. But Jesus is the Son of God Himself. And so while David or Matthew shows us He's the true King, the right to rule, and that Mark shows us He's the true servant of all, and Luke shows us He's the true man, John says He's true God. And so what we have in these Gospels is that these men are interpreting the events of Jesus' life. So reading one Gospel, yes, you get the main point. But you will deprive yourself if you're not reading the other Gospels as well. Now, Mark's Gospel, as we learned uh, from, from uh, the, that our first series of studies in Mark, is that Mark is constantly building the case about who Jesus is because people are confused. Now, here's the challenge if you grew up in the West. So, I love doing ministry in Japan because you can talk to them about Jesus and they have no clue. You ask them what the Gospel is and they don't, understand, they don't know anything which means they're not bringing a lot of preconceived ideas. They don't know the story enough to take it for granted. Now, there's a good chance that if you're here, even if you're not a regular Bible, go to church regularly, you kind of know the trajectory of the story that Jesus is supposed to be God and Jesus is supposed to do all this. And why do they reject him? I don't know. But get yourself back to the original writers. They have no idea what is going on. We have 2,000 years of history and interpretation that we stand upon. Their minds are being blown that God would be man, right? Even their conception of Messiah at that time was a little bit all over the map. And so you see Mark building the case. Everyone's asking, who 
is this guy? Where does he get his authority? How does he do these things? Constantly through Mark's narrative, we're learning that people are trying to figure out who is Jesus. Now, add to the mystery, Mark records how often Jesus is telling people, shh, don't say a word, right? So chapter 1, verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark 1.44, and said, and said to him, Jesus saying to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, right? And then we see in Mark chapter 3, verse 12, and Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. Mark chapter 5, verse 43, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And then finally, Mark 7.36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. And we see that again. We'll see that again in our passage this morning. But the question we have to ask is, so why is Jesus doing this? Why is Jesus commanding silence? Well, from our perspective, it doesn't make sense because we're thinking, hey, you're Jesus. Let everyone know who you are. I mean, that's what you told us to do. So what are you doing? But you get yourself back into their perspective. There's a lot of confusion about who the Messiah is supposed to be. Why does he command so much silence? The reality is because at that time, everyone was looking for a Messiah figure, someone who would overthrow the Romans, someone who would establish the nation of Israel and fulfill all the promises that we studied, some of them in the prophetic literature. Some thought that Messiah would simply be a mere man in the line of David, a charismatic leader and a powerful ruler. Some thought Messiah would be this unusual divine being from heaven that brings cataclysmic change. Everyone thought Messiah was going to show up, kick butt, and take names. No one thought Messiah was going to die. And so Jesus wants to make it real clear and he, we actually see this in our passage, that the only way to understand Messiah, the only way to understand him, is going to be after the cross. Because people have no category for what's happening here. No one thought Messiah was going to die, let alone that the Messiah would be God, man, laying his life down for the sins of humanity. It's, it's actually only until Mark 8 where Jesus' disciples start to begin to understand this, to begin to get a glimpse that things are not what they seem here. Things are not what they seem to us. And from this point on in Mark's narrative, you're going to notice, taking you back into February, the first half of Mark's gospel, he's kind of roaming around Galilee, teaching here and there, kind of wandering around. It almost seemed aimlessly. You remember going back and forth on the lake all the time, teaching to all these people. Well, starting Mark 8 and on, it becomes about Jerusalem, and Jesus spends the majority of his time teaching his disciples and what he's trying to do to them and to any of us who would follow after him is get a good grasp about who he is. So he's spending a lot of time trying to help them see reality. And the masterful way Mark is doing this, Mark makes his point in how he actually ended the first half of Mark's gospel. You remember the, the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. So go to the gospel of Mark chapter 8. Let me dip back a little bit into where we ended in May to get you up to speed. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 to 26, and they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took 
the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly and he sent him to the village, sent him home to his village saying, do not enter the village and tell anyone about this. So what is Mark showing us? By the way, this is the only time we see what seems to be a miracle that doesn't take. What Mark is showing is that it is only the touch of Jesus on us as we hear his word, read his word, that our sight becomes clear as to what's going on. Mark is illustrating, you're beginning to see, but you don't see clearly yet. Jesus is going to have to continue to minister to you before you see clearly what's happening. What makes this amazing, we're not going to get into it in our sermon, but on the other end of this chunk of Mark, there's another healing of a blind man, but he's healed instantly. And in between these two, the connection comes that Jesus is the Messiah who will die for humanity. And so even in these kind of narratives Mark is showing, we're starting to understand, we're starting to read, we're starting to get it, and it culminates in Peter's confession in 829, I know who you are, you are Christ. And Matthew's gospel says, Peter says, you are Christ, the son of the living God, and I see, I get it. Oh, but things aren't what they seem, Peter. You still don't see clear enough, and that's what gets us to our passage this morning. So Jesus says in verse 31, after Peter's proclamation, and Jesus began to teach them immediately. He says, so, so as soon as Peter says this, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Verse 32, and Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this gets us to where we're at this morning. From now on, we're going to look at verse 34 all the way up to 929. And the reason we're stopping at 929 is because immediately after that, for the second time, Jesus tries to teach them that he's going to die and rise again. So they kind of bookend the, the section we're looking at. In between those two mind-blowing announcements that the Son of Man, yes, I am Messiah, but guess what? I'm going to die. <laughs> Everyone's going to turn against me, and they're going to crucify me. In between those two proclamations, those two teaching moments, we have three amazing narratives that oftentimes, um, when you're going through the mark, they're taught individually. But I want to teach all three of them together because I think there is a larger connective idea that I believe runs through the rest of Mark's gospel. You see, on the heels of, of Peter's confession here in chapter 8, verse 29, I think that Mark is trying to get us to understand, if we are going to be disciples of Christ, if we are going to follow Jesus, we need to get used to the fact that things are not as they seem. Now, this doesn't mean Christianity is obtuse or, or it's hard to follow. Christianity actually makes the most coherent sense of the world around us than any other system out there. But as we'll see this morning, things are often not as they seem with God, 
because it becomes the fact that the reality is it's our own priorities, our own perspectives are often incorrect. And secondly, we tend to trust in our own resources and our own point of view rather than God's. And so Mark makes this point in three ways. You don't need to write this down because it's, we're going to work through them one at a time. Number one, discipleship. We see this in chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. Discipleship is not what it seems. Then in chapter 9, verses 2 to 9, Jesus is not what he seems. And then chapter 9, verse 14 and 29, the world is not what it seems. And this is the point, I think, that, that Mark really, there are other things, but throughout the gospel, I think we do see this theme going through. So let's look at them one at a time. Number one, discipleship is not what it seems. So Jesus, uh, so he gets, Peter rebukes Jesus, which is really odd, and, and Jesus responds to him, rebukes him back. And then he called to him, Jesus calls the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is making it very clear to these disciples, these followers of his, those people who hear him, that following him is not the ticket to the gravy train right? If you thought I was going to overthrow Rome and establish Israel and everyone's going to get what, you know, what was coming to them and I'm going to establish you, that is not the way this works. You're not going to be getting anything from me or from this. It's, as a matter of fact, discipleship to me is not about getting anything. It's about denial. It's not about taking your ease at this point. It's about taking up your cross, which everyone there would have known immediately was a symbol of execution and death. I, mean, I think it's a beautiful commentary on Christianity's redemptive power that the cross has now become a symbol of life, when in fact of the matter it was a symbol of death. If we were to modernize this story, imagine our symbol being a, a nine millimeter bullet round or an electric chair, whatever it might be. Everyone understood picking up your cross means there's the end of your life. Jesus is saying, in short, be prepared to lose your life. You see, when they thought he was Messiah, they thought this is where the good life begins, and Jesus says, no, you need to prepare to lose it. In short, if, if you're not prepared to be a loser, you can't be a follower of Christ. Now, that's not like loser, like, hey, you're a loser, kind of a loser. That's not what he's getting at. But he is talking about you need to be prepared to lose, to relinquish control over your life. You need to be prepared to lose or relinquish the, the right to demand your desires to be first in your life. You need to relinquish, lose the, the, the right to be unaccountable with the way you live. And, and what Jesus is getting at here, friends, taps into all of our modern idolatries, doesn't it? Autonomy, selfishness, freedom. And to our modern perspective, I'll unpack this a little, bit, a little bit more later, but in our modern perspective and understanding Jesus, this, this is a losing proposition. But things are not what they seem. Jesus says those who hold on to their lives, their, their autonomy, their freedoms, these things, they're only going to lose it. 
In fact, if, if giving all of, that, all of that up seems hard, it's not nearly as hard as the consequence of holding on to them. Look at verse 35 and 36. Whoever would save his life, they'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his own life? What appears to be hard, losing your life, all your rights, your desires, your freedoms, a claim to those things, is actually how you gain it. You hear clearly, Jesus is saying the cost of not giving up your life is far too high to hold on to it. Verse 37, for what can a man give in return for his life? If you follow Christ, it, you might seem like the one that loses. You might seem like a loser, but things are not always what they seem. Jesus says, you're the one who gains it all. That's what he says in verse 35, the second half of it. In either case, in this scenario, things aren't what they seem. The one who clings on to their life loses it. The one who lets their life go gains it. Either way, things are not what they seem on the surface. Now, Jesus tells us what the root of this problem is, the, the, why we would be tempted to cling on to our life, why Jesus' words sound contrary. We see the problem in verse 33 of chapter 8. When Jesus rebukes Peter, he nails what the issue is. Get behind me, Satan. I think he's actually calling Peter Satan. Satan means the adversary, the obstacle, a stumbling block. He says, you're, you're opposing the things of God. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but what's he tell him? You're setting your mind on the things of man. That's the problem of the disciples. That's the problem not just of those, but those that followed him. That's the problem of disciples throughout history. That's oftentimes our problem, friends. What fills your mind? What is fueling your thinking? Now, now you might say you are a Christian. You might uh, uh, say all those things, but this is where understanding our culture, the air we breathe is so important. How much of the way you see your life is filtered by the things of God, and how much of the way you see the things of God are filtered by the way you see your life? Let me just give a, a quick illustration of this. One of the cultural values of our time is this idea of freedom, right? Like, I'm just free. We, I mean, this is like an American virtue. We have the right to pursue freedom, even though the classical sense of freedom has been lost. So, moral philosophers call it um, absolute negative freedom. Regular people like us, we just say, freedom means I get to do whatever I want. And, and isn't that the value of our society, right? People want to do what they want. They, they want to come and go as they please, work the job they want to work, marry who they want to marry. They just want to be free. They want to be free whatever gender they choose to be, however they live. They want to be free because freedom means removal of all constraints, absolute negative freedom. There's nothing that constrains me. If you know anything about our history, that's not what freedom classically means. Freedom doesn't mean freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom means the freedom to do what you should. But friends, think about this, and, and, and I think I'm true, right? We, we all feel this way, that people say freedom means I get to do what I want. But here's something to think about. If freedom means we all get to do what I want, then that's a world where love cannot exist. Because if you understand the nature of love, what is love? Love is not me doing whatever I want. Love is giving away my rights, giving away of me for what the needs of others are. 
And so the more I try to cling on the freedom, the less I can actually get love. And conversely, the more I give up this concept of freedom, the more I'm able to experience love. Now, this, this isn't, I can't you told, point you to a Bible verse on this, but when you stop and think about it, it makes total sense. But we live in a society where on the one hand, everyone's demanding their freedom and everyone's, don't sing the song, but looking for love, right? And they're wondering why it's not working. And the reason they can't find their life is because they're holding on to something that's taking it away. But see, that's the world we live in, and there's dozens of examples of this. And Jesus says, if you want to find life, you got to lose it. You got to redefine your understanding of freedom, right? Here's another more, maybe um, less abstract, more practical way to think about it. Think about the last five really important decisions you made in your life, uh, beyond what you're going to eat today, or kind of a thing, and ask yourself how many biblical principles you can consciously point to that undergirded your decision-making process. Look from a different perspective. What text of Scripture or texts of Scriptures helped inform the way you made that decision? Whether it was what school you went to, whether or not to take the promotion, to get married, remain single, to move away, whatever it might be. How conscious were you of the things of God? Or was the decision-making process entirely about the things of man? I cannot tell you how oftentimes when people tell me they move, my first counsel to them, find a good local church. And I cannot tell you how often that's the last thing people think about when they move. And so they find the right house, great job, and they realize how important the community of believers are when they don't have it anymore, right? So how, what's fueling the way we think? And the disciples were, think, were thinking was fueled by the things of man, and so they didn't understand what being a disciple of this Messiah would be about. Now, understandably, Understandably, I'm going to run long this morning, so I'm sorry, but um, just going to be honest with you, give me some of that time. Understandably, Christ just drops this bomb on these disciples. He says to them something very scary. He just upended their entire understanding of what is going on. If you give control, if you give Christ control, if you give him authority, if you give Christ access to all of your life, How do you know things are going to turn out all right? I thought he was going to do all this and give us stuff, but he's actually asking everything from me. How do we know things will turn out okay? What if he demands more from me than I can give? What if he does something I don't want him to do? What if he asks something that's too hard? Is this Christ, is he good enough? Is he strong enough? Is he smart enough? Is he able, is he enough to make things work out? If he wants everything from me, can I trust him? I mean, after all, Jesus is, he's just, Joseph, he's just Joseph's son, the carpenter, right? I mean, he gets tired. I see him sleep. He gets hungry. I see him eat. And if he told us he's going to get killed, then how is he going to watch out for us? You can imagine that's how they're thinking as this is taking place, which is why it's interesting in every three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus <laughs> demands and asks this discipleship immediately is followed our next point, which is the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 9. Let me read that to you. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I think it's Luke's gospel, maybe Luke's, that says they, they were talking to Jesus about His soon departure, meaning His crucifixion. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, verse 6, for he did not know what to say because he was terrified. It's a, that's a good point. If you don't know what to say, just don't say anything. Here's Peter opening his mouth again. Um, and a cloud overshadowed them, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. Okay, this narrative, this amazing moment plays a very important role in Mark's gospel. Jesus just spoke to his disciples. Whatever you think Messiah is, get that out of your mind because I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die. And he talks to them about the cost of being his disciple, neither of which was very inspiring or very encouraging probably. Maybe there isn't an upside to following Jesus after all. If he's not the guy I thought he was, Maybe I'm not so sure I want to invest in him. Maybe you've been tempted to think the same kind of thing. What these disciples needed right here, what Mark's first readers needed is the same thing we need today. Reassurance that in fact, regardless of what's about to happen, Jesus is God's agent of redemption and that his death, this betrayal, all this terrible end is not a sign that God has abandoned him. They needed to know what we need to know is Jesus, is Jesus's worth and his trustworthiness. The kind of trustworthiness that, that demands, the kind of, that's worthy of the discipleship that Jesus demands. In other words, if Jesus demands I give everything to him, then I need to know that he's actually worthy and trustworthy of that demand. If I'm putting it all on the line, can I trust him? And I want to point out two things that this transfiguration teaches us and draw an application. Number one, what the disciples saw from Jesus, and number two, what they heard from Jesus. What do they see? They saw Jesus transfigured. We get the English word metamorphosis from the word in the Greek here, that he's totally transformed, changed. Matthew's gospel says his face shone like the sun. And you can hear Mark trying to explain what's going on with his clothes. You notice the piling on of adjectives, that, that, that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, like no bleach on the earth could make white. They are seeing what in John chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus is going to the cross, he says, Lord, glorify me now with the glory I had with you before. They're seeing a glimpse of Jesus' glory and sovereignty being displayed right there. They are seeing that take place. If they were tempted to think that Jesus was just a, a good moral teacher or rabbi, things are not what they seem. If they were thinking that Jesus was just a better one of some of the other itinerant preachers or miracle workers, he is not what he seems at all. Friends, how often are our, are our affections and loyalties to Christ diluted because we don't see him in his glory? You've seen those bumper stickers. I mean, I like them to some degree, but like my, my, my best friend is a, or my boss is a Jewish carpenter, right? And in our desire to make Jesus so relatable... 
we have sometimes undercut the reality that he's incomparable. And we don't see that anymore. And what God, what Jesus is showing his disciples is his glory. He is worthy of the discipleship that he's demanding. And they are seeing that full blown. Friends, one of the, the trick of the devil throughout the ages is to devalue, demean, and dethrone Jesus as Lord and King of all. And how often we, we may play right into that, forgetting that he's the Lord of glory himself and he's revealing it right there. He is worthy of that kind of discipleship because his glory and sovereignty is being seen. And, and, and to boot, we see Moses and Elijah. Why are they there? Think about it. those two men, one associated with the law, Moses, and the other associated with all the prophets, Elijah. You have to think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he says, look, do, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. And there they are talking about his redemptive work. According to Luke's gospel, he tells us about this. And as if that wasn't enough, they hear the voice of God attesting to Jesus saying, this is my son, listen to him. If he says, give up your life, give up your life. If he says, abandon everything and grab the gospel, abandon everything and grab the gospel. Listen to my son. Friends, what is Jesus telling you? What is he telling you through his word? Is there an area of your life you're still holding on to? A struggle that you won't re release to him, a relationship that you want to hold on to that anger? Forgiveness that you need to extend, but you want to hold on to that because somehow that gives you some power. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So that's what they saw from Jesus. Now listen to what they heard from him in verse 9 as they come down the mountain. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them, tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So obviously Jesus is saying, don't say a peep about this till I come back. He's reminding them of his terrible end and he's telling them very plainly. By the way, notice Mark in chapter 8, verse 32. Mark makes it clear. I don't know why we didn't get it. Jesus spoke these things plainly, he says, and here he says it again. As I look at that, I just, the, the kind of point that seems clear to me is that Jesus' sufferings do not negate his sovereignty. Jesus knew they were coming. Likewise, your sufferings do not negate his sovereignty either. Things are not what they seem. This transfiguration narrative, which, by the way, is unique, wholly unique of all any of the biblical literature of Hellen or the Hellenistic, the Greek literature of the time. We don't have anything like this. This is, this is totally, absolutely unique. It's to remind us, and it follows on the heels of Christ's demand of discipleship. It is there to remind us that He is, Jesus is worthy and trustworthy of our lives. Why? Because He is the glorious one. And even if there is suffering, it does not take away from His purposes or His supremacy. This was the reality of John the Baptist. We didn't look at that, but that, that's what those kind of messages, that, verses 12 through 14, that's what it's referring to. It was this way for Jesus himself. We shouldn't be surprised if that's how it is for us as well. Our sufferings do not diminish his purposes or his supremacy because we need to have our mind on the things of God, not just on the things of man. 
Now, there's one last narrative we need to look at that builds on this theme. So, if, if discipleship is not what it seems, if Jesus is not who he seems, then the world is not what it seems, and, and I don't have much time, so I'm just going to read it and make a couple of connections. Uh, I'm going to try and read it um, fast. I know I do everything fast, but uh, 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with, with my disciples? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Verse 19, and he answered them, a faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to them, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So, number one, this is, as I said, a historical event in that it actually happened. But I think Mark places it here to reinforce what we have just been learning. Think about it. What do we come upon when we come to this scene? A couple of items. Number one, the devil is wrecking havoc. There is a boy who is oppressed, a father who is desperate. Crowds watching this that have no solution. The disciples themselves are defeated and powerless. The religious leaders, the scholars, they're arguing, but like typical, they're useless when stop, coming to stop evil. It seems like a hopeless situation, and it is, until what? Until Jesus intervenes. So how are these narratives connected? In our first narrative, Jesus says that discipleship will seem like you're losing your life, but it's actually the way to life what appears to be losing one's life is actually the gaining of it. Then Jesus proves that he's worthy of such discipleship because while he may appear as any other rabbi or teacher, he is far more than what he seems. And his suffering in the world does not negate his supremacy over it. They now walk into a situation which is really a commentary on the, on the world that we experience every day, even today. Now, I gave you the specifics, but let's pull back a little bit and think about what we're looking at, a situation where there is just a, a, a world where there's desperate need, and there's weak faith, squabbling crowds, powerless religion, disciples who are discouraged, but, and, and although things seem really bad, there is a risen Lord who can make a difference, and He answers prayers, especially the prayer of a father like this. He says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. 
Now, it's easy to see this last narrative completely separate from the preceding two and and turn this into some great exorcism story that we can still cast out demons or on the importance of prayer, but then we would miss the connective theme. And we really see that when you look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 18, when when the man says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able And then the very end of it, verse 28 and 29, when they entered the house, the disciple says, how come we couldn't do this? Why why couldn't we do it? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Friends, here's the thing. Prayer are for those people who know their dependence. Prayer are for those people who know they are helpless and therefore dependent on another. Prayer is for those who have confidence in something other than their own resources and their own ability. Prayer is for people who know that things aren't what they seem. It's just not words hitting the ceiling, doing nothing. They are leaning into the purposes and will of God. See, Mark is not suddenly switching gears here. He's staying with the connective theme of the narrative. Those disciples who their minds were not on the things of God were only on the things of man, and because of that, they couldn't understand what Jesus was asking of their lives. They need to be reminded that He is the Lord of glory and that whatever He says, listen and obey, no matter how it might appear on the surface, and now how are they going to impact the world? Not because they're all that in a bag of chips or they've got some special anointing, but because they are leaning into the purposes of God, believing He makes a difference. This is why Jesus says in in, in verse 19 and 23, "You, you faithless generation, how long do I have to keep teaching you this lesson? I brought you to be my disciples, but you still need me. Remember in chapter 3 and 6, he says, I want you to do these things, but it's clear they're beginning to think they've got it what it takes. And Jesus says, you don't. If you think you're going to make a difference in the world, unhinged from me, thinking the things of man and not of God, it's not going to go anywhere. So the question we have to ask in conclusion is, do you believe discipleship to Jesus is worth giving up your life and control? That's the question out of Mark 8, 34 to 38. Do you believe Jesus is glorious and worthy of that kind of sacrifice? That's the point of the transfiguration. If you can, then you must realize the world is not as it seems. You may be looking around your life and it is just desperate need. You see weak faith and discouragement all around, but there is a risen Savior who answers prayer and He makes a difference for those who are convinced of His glory and willing to commit themselves to His purposes. That's the theme we see through the Gospel of Mark. This is the picture that Mark is intending us to understand because with Jesus, nothing is as it seems. As a matter of fact, think about this, the very final scene of the gospel. It seems that Rome is crucifying a criminal for his crimes, but things are not as they seem because it's a Savior dying for the sins of the world. And Jesus and Mark, Mark's trying to get us to understand with Christ, nothing is as it seems. Let's pray. Father, we just covered a lot, but covered so little. Father, thank you that uh, community groups will be discussing this, and, and, and we got great shepherds who will help us chew on this. We do live in a world where we're so prone to keep our focus on the things of this world, and we lose sight of what you might be doing. I know I do. I'm guilty of that. Father, would you help us to see with the eyes that we need to see, 
May we hear what your spirit is trying to say through your word, in the world, through your people. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.